right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is good to be with you today and continue in this sermon series on the story of Scripture. I know I love the fact that when, I, when I'm able to be here uh, and even as Pastor Rick goes over to Belmont this morning, I look around and there's both a mix of some familiar faces and some of us, we don't know each other that well. I count that as a good thing because God is continuing to work and continuing to build this community of faith. And we planted Belmont, as Pastor Marvin said, almost eight years ago. Uh, and we said at that time that we felt like God was calling us to plant this congregation so that we would reach people in two places that we wouldn't just reach in one. And it's amazing to watch God do that, especially after COVID, the amount of people that walk to, it's a totally different environment. It's the neighborhood church, all street parking. Uh, the amount of people that now walk from the neighborhood to church versus drive from other communities is, is increasing. And that's a great thing. Uh, and so we love partnering in ministry together. I love coming back to Burlington and I'm here during the week. My kids go to school here. I've got a closet over here that's at, supposed to be an office. And, uh, and so I'm here quite often, but it's great to come on Sunday mornings and see all the people that God is bringing and everything that's changing. The first time, I was just thinking about this, the first time I preached from this stage, there's so much that's changing and there's some things that, that remain the same. And I love that some things change and some things remain the same. First time I, I preached on this stage on a Sunday morning, the year was 2005, and Dr. Robert Crosby, who if you were here two uh, weeks ago preached, uh, was our pastor at the time, and he asked me if I'd preach on a Sunday morning, which was a great honor, still is, and so I came up here to preach, and right over here in the second row were Gus and Veronica Bailey looking unbelievable in 2005. And so I come here and so much has changed, but I love the fact that I can look in that second row and there they are, Gus and Veronica Bailey still looking unbelievable. You know, almost 20 years later, looks fantastic. And Gus, I, I like this. I, I haven't seen that before, but that, that's, that's good. So it's good to be back here this morning. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we have, have been in this sermon series where we're talking about the story of Scripture. And that first week uh, that we, we talked about this, we used that illustration of, of a corn maze and how when you're stuck in the middle of the corn maze, you know, you can see the different pathways and the turns. But if you get up above and they, you take the drone view of the corn maze, it's much easier to see how it all connects together. And so often when we study scripture, uh, you're, you're in the middle of those, those mazes and you're reading one particular story or parable. And sometimes it's good to get up above the hole and, and see how it all all connects together. And that's what we're trying to do in this sermon series. So what we've said is that the Bible is 66 books, it's 1,189 chapters, and it's one story. One story with many episodes is how I've been saying that. And we've said the story of Scripture. I think there's a few ways that we could try and summarize the story of Scripture. But the way we've been doing it in this series is we've been saying that the story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with him. One of the things that we've said is that it's important if you're going to understand the story of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, 
that you need to know how your Bible is organized. Uh, many of us come to Scripture and we say, well, I'm sure the books just go in the order in which they happen, but that's not entirely true. That's a little bit true, but not entirely true. And so we've taken a look at these numbers over and over again, week after week. And if you've been here, my guess is you've clapped these out and you've said 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. My dream is that during the week you're washing dishes or you're driving in your car and just over and over in your head for no particular reason, you find yourself saying 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, and you don't even realize that it's happening because now these numbers are so ingrained uh, in you. Justin Joseph, uh, who is on the teaching team here at Mount Hope and who preaches often for us in Belmont, he preached last week and he's, he's sitting over here for some reason this morning. And, uh, and he put these numbers up on the screen uh, last week in Belmont and announced to the congregation that these were Pastor Brian's lottery numbers. And I want you to know that that's not correct. These are something different. These are the books of the Bible. Uh, the five, five books of the law, very quickly, right? The 12, 12 books of history, five, five books of poetry or wisdom literature. literature. What's the next five? The major prophets, right? And then you have 12 minor prophets, and it's important. That makes it sound like some of those are more important than others, but that's not correct. Uh, it has more to do with the length of the books than whether or not they're important or what key they're written in. So the other thing that's important to understand is that the poetry and the major prophets and the minor prophets, you can wrap your arms around those books, kind of pick them up and drop them into the books of history. That's when they're written. Go back to the books of history and you read about King David. That's when he's writing many of those psalms that then you read about in the books of po that you read in the books of poetry. So you take the prophets and the books of poetry. Those all are actually written during that time of history, uh, but they're organized out by genre. So then there's a 430-ish years of silence. We talked about that last week if you were with us. And then we get to the New Testament. Four Gospels. One book of early church history. 21, 21 letters, right, to early churches, early Christians, and then one book of, of prophecy that we will get to in a couple of weeks. Some of you are really waiting for that one, the book of Revelation and what we're going to say there. This week we're on the first one, book of Acts, book of church history, and, and what God did in the early church after Jesus' ministry on this earth. And so if you want to take a Bible and turn to the beginning of the book of Acts, we're going to spend most of our time in, the, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I think if you understand how the book begins, you can understand exactly what God is doing in and through the church uh, in the book of Acts. So we're going to spend uh, much of our time there in that place. I was listening to a podcast uh, this past week, and on the podcast was an author and speaker and a professor, I believe, at the University of Nevada, someone that I hadn't heard before, but his name is Michael Easter. And Michael Easter in 2021 wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis that was sitting at the top of all those bestsellers lists, the Wall Street Journal and New York Times for a number of weeks. And as he talked about the book, I, I found it interesting. He said that his whole thesis in the book is this idea that we have created such a society of comfort that we're actually cheating ourselves out of the mental and physical benefits of being uncomfortable. 
Uh, he gets into it, and he, he shows the research, and he actually traveled 30,000 miles around the globe to interview different people. He did, of course, so that it would be a bestseller. He did some crazy, uncomfortable things, like live in the Arctic for 30 days by himself and record that journey to talk about the benefits of what it's like to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And he argues in the book that research shows that all of our comfortable environments that we create, everything's climate controlled, our chairs have lumbar support. We can heat our seats in our cars and all the other things that we put together. He said, if we never force ourselves out of our comfort zone, we're actually cheating ourselves of the physical and mental uh, benefits that come from being pushed outside that comfort zone. So he's made it a rule in his life. He said, I have two rules in my life. One is at least once a year, I have to put myself in a difficult, challenging situation in which there's at least a 50% chance that I fail. And I thought to myself, when's the last time I put myself in a situation where I, I'm like, this could go either way, right? Either, either it goes well or I completely fail. I mean, I, I try to only put myself in situations where I might not do it as well as I, as I could, but I, I think at least I'm not going to completely fail. He said at least once a year, he's putting himself in situations where there's at least a 50% chance that he's not going to be able to do it physically or mentally. And he said his second rule is only this, uh, don't die while you're doing that, right? That's, so there's two rules. He put himself in an uncomfortable situation and try not to die while he's doing it. So I think about that, and I come to the book of Acts, and I start to notice that the early believers in the book of Acts were only in uncomfortable situations. There are not very many comfortable situations in the early church in the book of Acts. And I think about how we live out our faith in our world today and the comforts that we require and the things that we, that we look for when we're going to worship together and work together. And I look back at the book of Acts and I, and I want, can't help but wonder myself, you know, what are they experiencing in these uncomfortable places that we might not be experiencing today? What benefits might there be for believers and churches to put themselves in very uncomfortable places? And the second thing that strikes me as I look at the book of Acts and think about this is that many of these early believers put themselves in uncomfortable places. Almost all the disciples put themselves in uncomfortable places. And they did die for this. They were willing to put themselves in uncomfortable places where they did die for this. So we come to something like the book of Acts, and I, and I have this question about what does it all mean for us as we get to this place in the story? And to answer that question, what does the fact that the early church put itself in these uncomfortable situations, that they were willing to give up their lives for the gospel and, what, and the truth that it is, what does that mean for me today? And what does that mean for you today? And as I ask myself that question, I think the only way we can, we can get into that and answer that is by what we see in these first. 11 verses. In order to introduce these first 11 verses, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit. We talk about the story of Scripture being God with us so that we can be with Him. And we're reminded at the very beginning of the story 
that that's exactly how God created the world. That in the garden, Adam and Eve and all of creation, God was perfectly with his creation and his creation was perfectly with him. Of course, all of that is broken by the sin of Eve and of Adam and our sin breaks that perfect reality. And so God throughout scripture, and this is what we've been looking at over the last few weeks as we've gone through the Old Testament and now into the New Testament, God in scripture takes it upon himself to restore what has been broken. And the way God does that, the vehicle in which God uses, and this is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, are the covenants that he makes with his people. And we've looked at a few of the big ones. There's more than this in scripture we could argue, but we've looked at a few of the big ones. The covenant that God makes with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, there is this promise that there will be a day, and this is hundreds of years before Christ is born, that there will be a day that there will be a new covenant that God will make with his people. And every time we receive communion in church, we're reminded of this. Where Jesus, as he's having that last meal with his disciples, takes the cup from the table and says, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. The covenants are are promises that are a blend of law and love. We don't use covenant that often in our world today, but we use it around marriage Covenants are are, are a blend of law and and love. We're bound together with God. God wants to be bound together with you. Not just to to have a personal relationship with you. I've been thinking about throughout this story of Scripture. That's often what we say, that God wants a personal relationship with you. But God wants something more than a personal relationship with you. God wants a covenantal relationship with you. And in fact, throughout Scripture, God uses this type of language, marriage-type language, to talk about the relationship that he longs to have with you, calling the group of us together, the church at large, the bride of Christ, right? And even in that, in, that, uh, in that passage in Jeremiah 31 where he talks about the new covenant, he uses the term husband to describe himself in relationship with his people. God desires covenant with us. I think sometimes we water that down with, with personal relationship. And we have to be careful about that. Because when we sing our songs and our songs say, I am a friend of God, right? Yes, you are a friend of God, but it's more than that. Because when you're a friend of God, you, it's very casual. It can be casual and you can say, you know, I'm a friend of God, but God's cool if I go out and do what I want to uh, and follow other gods as well. And God's not cool with that. He wants a covenantal relationship with you where you are bound to him and he is bound to you. And within the covenants, one of the things that strikes me within the covenants as we've looked at these throughout Scripture is that you both have God's presence everywhere and the power of his presence localized all at once. You both have within the different covenant structures, God's presence everywhere at once, but also the power of his presence is, is localized. I don't know how else to say that. It's in one particular place throughout the history of his people. So God makes a covenant with Abraham 
in Genesis 15 and reaffirms it in Genesis 17. And yes, God says to Abraham, I am, I am with you as you go. But in Genesis 15, when he makes that covenant with Abraham, there's this very localized, powerful presence of God that's, that is, is in form of a smoking fire pot, the text says, and a flaming torch that moves between these animals that have been laid there for the, for the creation of the covenant. And with Moses, you have God is surely with his people. He is with his people as they wander through the desert. But then you have a very localized presence of God, whether that is through the pillar of smoke and fire as he's leading his people through the wilderness, or then the tabernacle as he gives Moses those instructions to build the tent of meeting. And there is the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle where the power of God's presence dwells. And then as they're on the move, you have the Ark of the Covenant, and we know exactly what that looks like like because Indiana Jones found it for us a number of decades ago, right? With the, pow the, the power of the presence of God, the localized power of the presence of God. The covenant with David is an interesting one. I love this one because David comes to God there in 2 Samuel ch chapter 7, and he says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says to David, and when I, when I read this, it's so convicting to me. God says to David, David, I'm much less concerned about what you want to build me, and I'm much more concerned about what I want to build through you. He said, don't worry about building me a house right now. I want to build through you an everlasting kingdom. And so David doesn't build the house but his son Solomon builds the temple. And in the temple now you have a permanent holy of holies where the powerful localized presence of God dwells even as God remains with his people. So now in the new covenant, which is what you and I live under, you have God with us. But you also had in the, in the new covenant, you still had the holy of holies in the temple. Where if you were here last week, Zechariah goes and hears from God for the first time in 430-ish years. But then you also have Jesus Christ himself, who is the localized, powerful presence of God among the people for three years of ministry. So stick with me now. Now we come to the book of Acts. And at the very beginning of the book, Jesus leaves. And so the question is, where is the localized, powerful presence of God now? It's not in the temple. If you were here last week and we talked about Jesus' death on the cross, something happened to the curtain that was in the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that curtain? It was torn from top to bottom, right? You know the answer. Everyone's, everyone's very quiet. It was, I think it was torn from top to bottom. No, I get it. You're right. You're right. It was torn. Top to bottom. I mean, that powerful presence of God was no longer localized in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It is elsewhere. Where is it? We find out in the book of Acts. Let's take a look here. In the first book, we write, or we read, 
in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. If there's a first book, that means this is the second book. Little trivia question, does anyone know what book one is? You're right, someone say it louder. Luke, that's right. So the, God, the book of Acts is written by Luke, the same Luke that writes the gospel of Luke. He also addresses it to Theophilus. And so this is part two of Luke's writings. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them, listen to this, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John the Baptist... For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's an interesting moment, isn't it? That Jesus now, that curtain has been torn from top to bottom, signifying that the powerful localized presence of God is is elsewhere outside of the temple. And sometimes I, I take that to mean that it's just everywhere, all the time, equally present and, and that, that might be part of it, but yet Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, hey, once I ascend into heaven, go and do all the work because I'm everywhere all the time equally. Uh, and so just go and get it done. He says, I'm ascending, but you wait. Don't get started too early. Wait. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the beginning of the book of Acts is that under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is God with you. The Holy Spirit is God with us. There is something here about about God's powerful localized presence. Yes, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere equally at one time. But there is this localized presence of God, the power of God that indwells in his Holy Spirit. And the question is, now if that's true, that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with us, where does the presence dwell? And we find that out too in Acts chapter 2 in this book. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar. Pentecost is something that the church remembers, that, that we remember, because of what happens in the book of Acts. But it is... Also, and celebrated in the time of, of Jesus as a festival, a Jewish festival, in which 50 days after the first day of Passover, the people would gather for a harvest festival. And so what happens around Pentecost is that all the Jewish people that are living in the region, they come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. 
I think often in our Christian churches, we, we remember this as the day that the Holy Spirit came, but we forget that this was something that was happening year after year over and over again, and God is waiting for the right moment to allow his presence to descend on his people once the city is swollen with the crowds and the people from all the different regions have come into that place. And so in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we begin to read about what happens. And it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here's what we understand just through the very beginning of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit is under the new covenant, God with us. That that localized, power, powerful presence of God comes through the Holy Spirit. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's not just out there. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see happen in the book of Acts, chapter 2, is that process beginning to take place. And the apostle Paul says it as well in his letter to the church at Corinth. He says to them, the believers, do you not know that you are God's temple? That that curtain was torn from top to bottom and the powerful presence of God no longer dwells in the temple that, by the way, has been destroyed since 70 A.D.? But it dwells in you, Paul says. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So all of that to say... That under this new covenant, the powerful presence of God does not exist in some location that you have to go and visit in order to feel his presence and the impact of his power. But God's, whole, God's presence exists in the Holy Spirit. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then dwells in you. So you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the question is, why? Why does God give us this gift? Do you know what my fear is? Because when I read the book of Acts, it becomes very clear in those first 11 verses why God gives us this gift of his presence. My fear is that we're taking the gift, that I'm taking the gift, and I'm not putting it to work for the reasons why the gift was given to me. Why does God give you this? Why is the Holy Spirit now God's presence with us dwelling inside of you? What is it for? A couple of Father's Days ago, um, I, I, my wife said, what do you want for Father's Day? And I said, I said well, I'd love to get a, a pressure washer. I'm not, I'm not a, a really handy person. Uh, when something breaks in my house, I've learned a long time ago, just call someone who knows what they're doing, ask them to come and fix it, pay them whatever they need, and that will be way better than me trying to do it myself, all right? I learned that a long time ago. But I can blow pollen off our deck. Like, I can do that. So I said, why don't you get me a pressure washer, and then when the pollen gets to the point like it's about to get to here in the next couple of weeks where I can draw pictures in it on the windows, I'll get out the pressure washer and I'll blow it all off the house. And so they got me a pressure washer, but they didn't just get me any one. 
one. They got me a really, really nice one. It was a way nicer version than what I was expecting. I actually am worried that it will blow the vinyl siding right off the house, or if I point it straight down, I'll shoot to the moon or something like that. It's a powerful pressure washer, and I really like it. It's sitting in my shed right now. Now, what happens if we go throughout this entire spring and I don't pull it out and use it? How happy will the gift givers be if that's what I do? How pleased would the giver of the gift be if I've asked for something and the giver has given me the gift for a specific reason and to be put to use, and rather than putting it to use, I'm just receiving it and saying thanks and just holding it for myself. I fear that in our churches, and especially in our Pentecostal expressions of which we are a part, that this is often what we do. That we say, you might receive the Holy Spirit, come experience the power of the Holy Spirit, because once you do, you will be happy and joyful, and you won't, you won't have those sad thoughts or feelings anymore, and all of that will be made better if you'll come experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is true. You, you experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, your life has new meaning and new purpose and new satisfaction and new joy and new peace that you never thought possible. But that's not why God gives you the gift. That is something that happens when you receive the gift. Just like when I opened up the pressure washer, I was happy and joyful. It was even better than I thought it would be. But that's not why I was given the gift. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, but he gives it to us for a reason, for a purpose. If the apostles had received the gift of the Holy Spirit in that room and never left, they would not have done the work that God called them to do. And in the rest of chapter 1, we start to see exactly why God, Jesus, why God gives us the gift of his spirit. Jesus says it very specifically. He says to them in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still asking the same questions. They thought that when the Messiah came, that the Messiah was going to kick the Romans out and give the land back to the Israelites. And now that Jesus has done three years of ministry, he's died and been raised again. They're standing there and they're saying, okay, God, is now the time that we finally take out our swords and get rid of the Romans and we establish the kingdom? And Jesus says, boy, you guys are slow learners. And so he says, he says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you might defeat the Romans. No, that's not what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their 
sight. And in those verses, we begin to discover why it is that God is with us through his Holy Spirit. God grants us his Holy Spirit so that, yes, you are going to feel peace like you've never felt before. Yes, you'll feel purpose and satisfaction that you never dreamed was possible. But God gives us the Holy Spirit because God's witness with us is designed to empower us to be witnesses for him. That's why the Holy Spirit is given, so that you might be a witness. Now, this is where it gets uncomfortable. This is where, as Christians, we suffer from the comfort crisis. Because it can be comfortable to go to church and everyone else is out mowing their lawn and you kind of sneak out and you, you don't tell them where you're going, but you come to church. And then you, you feel better because you came to church and you sang the songs and, and maybe you felt the presence of God while you were sitting in church and then you went home. That can be fairly comfortable. But what is really uncomfortable is to come and to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and then to go out into this world around us and to be witnesses to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That's a very uncomfortable thing that God calls us to do. For you to leave this place and go into work tomorrow or for you to leave this place and go into school tomorrow and try to be a witness to who Jesus Christ is, that is a very uncomfortable place. In fact, in the book that I talked about earlier, the author said he puts himself in situations where there's a 50% chance he might fail. I'm saying this to you and you're saying back to me, you know, pastor, if I do that in my workplace or I do that among the fellow students that I attend school with, there is a 99.9% .9 chance that that's going to fail. And yet God calls us to be a witness. Well, what does that mean? We don't have time to go through all of them through the book of Acts, but whether you look again at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or Stephen, or, or the apostles getting arrested, or Paul in Acts chapter 17, anywhere you look, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, anywhere you look where the disciples, the apostles are acting as witnesses, two things exist. One, they are witnessing to the power of Christ's resurrection. That's one. They're witnessing to the power of Christ's resurrection. And two, they are calling people to repentance. Anytime witness, the word witness is used in the book of Acts, the disciples are always witnessing to the resurrection and almost all the time are then calling people to repentance. Resurrection and repentance are present in witness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a hard thing. Because I love the idea that I can have witness without bringing up those things. There's an old, an old saying, I'm probably going to butcher it here in a moment because I'm saying it off the top of my head. There's an old saying in, in church world that is it's like share Jesus with other people and if you have to, use words. If you're going to witness, you have to use words. Have to. Last Sunday, every Sunday afternoon uh, over the last few weeks, my brother-in-law, Mike, who attends our Belmont campus, he coaches a flag football team 
I have an eight-year-old son, and he has an eight-year-old son, so he coaches the flag football team, and I'm the defensive coordinator. As much as you can be a defensive coordinator uh, for eight-year-old flag football, I'm the defensive coordinator. And so we get out there every Sunday afternoon, and we coach these boys, and we've coached them for seven seasons, because uh, there's three seasons a year, and we're super dedicated. So we've coached them for seven seasons. It's a great group of kids, and we really enjoy it. And I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, we're through like four weeks of the season, and we are just absolutely destroying every other team in this league. That's not really important, but I still wanted to tell you about it this morning. <laughs> There's a, a boy on our team who was born with a heart condition. In fact, he had to have surgery in the womb. It's always amazing that they can do that. Surgery in the womb and then surgery again when he was five days old. And his family found out this just a couple of weeks ago pretty unexpectedly that he was going to need to have open heart surgery again this last week. So I was really proud of Mike when after our football game last week, not Pastor Brian, who should probably be on top of these things, but Coach Mike walked over to the mom of this boy and said, before we leave the field, are you okay if me and, and Coach Brian here pray for your son? And that was an uncomfortable place to be, to ask that question, because we don't know, and I'm pretty fairly confident that we don't have a lot of other Christians on our team. But of course the mom said yes, and Mike and I gathered, and I don't even think the other players on our team really knew what was going on, but they started to gather around, and as they figured it out, they bowed their heads and joined in, and we, we prayed for this young boy, and, and it was an awesome moment uh, after seven seasons of investment in these boys to have this moment, we're able to pray for him. And praise God, he had his open heart surgery and was home in 48 hours this week, which was fantastic to hear. But here's the thing. It's a good thing. Praise God for that. I got convicted this week. Because I walk away from those moments and I say, what a witness. We did good. And then I read about the apostles and disciples. And I feel God saying to me, no, no, what you had there was a great first step. That was an awesome moment. Maybe it opens the door. But until resurrection and repentance are involved, we haven't witnessed the way Jesus calls us to witness. And I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by that. It's one thing for me to get up on the stage in the church and do it. It's another for me to go out on the flag football field and do it. And I say to myself, I can't do that. There's no possible way I could do that. And God says, I know you can't do it. That's why I give you my Holy Spirit to empower you to go do it. I know you can't do it. There's no possible way you can do it. I give you my Holy Spirit to, so that you can be empowered to go and do that work, to call people to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to do it on your own, God might say to me, of course you're going to fail. That is an impossible situation for you to handle on your own. That's why I give you my spirit, that you might be empowered to go and do the work that I call you to do. You and I need to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To call people to consider. If Christ was raised from the dead, because if he was raised from the dead, it means this whole thing is true. This week, uh, the Lord called Dr. Tim Keller home. 
I don't know if you've heard that name before, but Dr. Keller was a pastor for decades in Manhattan, planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and uh, was professor and other things throughout his time on this earth, but wrote many articles, many books. One of the things Dr. Keller would say in his sermons and in articles and in his books multiple times is that we have to get people to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, when I was in Virginia, just starting out, people would come to me and they'd say, I don't like the Bible. And I would say, why don't you like the Bible? And they'd say, because I don't like what it says about money. And then he moved to Manhattan and everyone would come to him and say, I don't like the Bible. And he'd say, well, why don't you like the Bible? And they'd say, well, I don't really like what it says about sex. And he would say to either of those people, any of those people that would come and say, well, I don't like what the Bible says about this, or I don't like what the Bible says about that. He would say to them, he would say, well, I understand that you don't like what the Bible says about those things, but do any of your opinions around those ideas uh, mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And they would say no. And he would say, well, you need to deal with that first. Figure out whether or not Christ rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead and God is the kind of God that overcomes death, then you need to go back and rethink about all of the other things that he says, but you need to do it through the lenses of understanding that the resurrection is a reality. Because that perception changes everything about the rest of what God says. And so often we get, we get all involved in arguing about these other things and we forget to witness to the resurrection, to call people to consider whether or not Christ died and was rose again, which is what we see the apostles and the disciples doing over and over again through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite our worship team forward as we close this morning. And as they come forward, I want you to consider the last couple of verses of Acts chapter 1. Jesus raises into heaven. A cloud takes Jesus out of their sight. And there are the disciples left alone. In Acts chapter 1 verse 10 says this, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. The same way that he went, he's coming back. And God has given us something to do. To be empowered by his spirit to go and witness to the reality of who he is. That's the work that we're called to do. It's uncomfortable. It's not easy. But as long as we refuse to put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations in which we witness to the reality of the resurrection and the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the call to repent and follow him, we will cheat ourselves of the spiritual growth that comes with putting ourselves in those positions and trusting and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of us. God empowers you 
so that you can go tell others that God wants to be with them. God is with you and empowers you so that you can go and witness to the reality of who he is. And listen, some of you are sitting here this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you have never before experienced this, this power of, of the Holy Spirit coming upon you and filling you for the work that God has called you to do. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe to this is a morning where you seek the Holy Spirit, where you wait on the Holy Spirit and you ask him to move and so fill you. I bet for many of us in the room, we have experienced that before, but if we're honest, we've stopped right at this place in the room, at the altar, in the sanctuary. We've come in and said, I want to experience the Holy Spirit. We come into the sanctuary, we experience the Holy Spirit, and we walk out and we say, I feel great. And we forget that you've been empowered for a reason. Not just to feel great, but to witness. And so some of us need to spend some moments here as we close the service together today spending some time asking that God would so fill you that he might empower you to go and do the work that he calls you to do. Listen, I grow tired of preachers and teachers who act like they control the Holy Spirit and can give the Holy Spirit to people. The Holy Spirit goes where he may. But I can promise you this, if you await on the Spirit, you will find him. And if you seek the Holy Spirit, he will fill you. And he will empower you to do the work that God's calling you to do. And so as we close this service, I'm inviting you to spend a few moments seeking after the Holy Spirit, to wait on him, that he might do the work that only he can do, that the powerful, local presence of God might so fill you that you are then empowered to go the work, do the work that God has for you to do this week. So would you stand with me as we close the service together? And even as I pray, if you're longing to seek the Holy Spirit this morning, you are welcome to come and to stand in this place, to come forward and stand in this place and ask the Holy Spirit to come and do the work that only He can do. And even as I pray here, I'd invite you to begin to come and to stand in this place and we will have people that will pray with you as we seek the Holy Spirit together. So God, we thank you for these moments that we have. And we thank you for the power of your presence that is among us. And God, I pray that in the next few moments as we stand in your presence and as we seek you, Holy Spirit, that you will come and dwell among us. Holy Spirit, that you will come and fill us, that you will empower us to do the work that you are calling us to do. God, would you come do that work among us that we cannot do on our own? God, we give this time to you and ask you to move in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to use this time to come and seek the Spirit, just come and stand or kneel in this place and let's seek Him together.